Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear you. And I pray that you would give us a renewed understanding of who we are before you and what you have called us to. Lord, I pray that we would see our hope. Amen. The New Testament readings during Easter season are all from the book of 1 Peter. And so I decided that we are actually going to use that for the preaching texts for the next handful of weeks. It's actually been a while since we've stayed in one particular book of the lectionary and traced it through. We've done this before, but many of you may not even remember that once upon a time we did this with Colossians. And once upon a time, we did it with James. And once upon a time, we did it with Hebrews. Most of the time, we're kind of bouncing all over the place, landing most heavily on the Gospels. <laughs> but this, this uh, Easter season, I saw the readings are all from 1 Peter from the New Testament. And I thought, I'm staying there. I love 1 Peter. And I think it matters to us. It's important for us to hear it. And so we're just going to trace it over the next number of weeks. We won't touch every passage. We don't have that much time. Unless you want me to go for an hour and a half every single day, we don't have that much time. I already heard the grumblings. It's a perfect book for Easter season because it's a book about living out the hope of the resurrection. If you were to say sort of what's the thread that undergirds all of 1 Peter, it is this idea of living hope. A living hope that springs from the fact that Jesus conquered death. And it's a living hope that can be lived out in the midst of suffering. That's a key. Because 1 Peter was actually written to people who were in the midst of a hostile world. It was written to people who were being mocked. Who were being abused. It was written to people who were suffering for their beliefs. It's pretty clear that they weren't yet at the level of martyrdom. It was somewhere in between were accepted and were being killed. And they're on that part of the journey where they're being mocked and belittled, losing employment, suffering for their beliefs. And so in face of that suffering, Peter seeks to encourage them. He seeks to encourage them and strengthen them. And he seeks to do this by reminding them of who they were. He seeks to encourage them and strengthen them by reminding them of what their calling is, what they're supposed to be doing. And he seeks to encourage them and strengthen them by reminding them where their hope actually lies. It's three th these three things, identity, calling, and hope, that this book really circles around. Identity, calling, and hope, all in the face of suffering. It's an important book for us, I believe. There's varying opinions on where America is on this spectrum between Christianity's totally accepted and Christians are being killed for their faith. What a person experiences is heavily based on where they work. I mean, you can go into a secular university setting where you can't breathe a word about your faith without feeling the repercussions. And you can go into the dentist's office and have the hygienist tell you gushingly about her church and has no repercussions whatsoever. A lot of it really does depend on where your life is located and what you do. You can have a Supreme Court justice grilled as if their faith is an impediment to the office, 
and then have a presidential candidate openly pray and talk about their faith. It's a weird, confused world that we're in. But there certainly are, in many of our lives, elements, at least the beginning elements, of those things that Peter was having to deal with. Places where it's difficult to be a Christian. We obviously don't live in the sort of top six of places where people are killed for their faith. The North Koreas, the Somalias, the Yemens, the Eritreas, the Nigerias. We don't live in those places. But it is clear that we do live in a culture that's increasingly skeptical of Christian beliefs. And sort of on the positive, the best end of the spectrum, it's just this dismissed as an irrelevant thing. So it's a private belief that has no bearing on real life for the public square. And at the worst, there's a hostility. A belief that this is intolerant, ugly, full of hate, irrational. In other words, we may not be where First Peter's audience was, and we're certainly not where Nigeria is right now, but there are elements of his message that we need to hear. Because whenever Christians are faced with people who dismiss their beliefs as irrelevant, irrational, or full of bigotry, whenever Christians are faced with that sort of perspective against them, it's easy to respond in the wrong ways. It's easy to respond by saying, we're just going to fight back. We're going to take everything back and we're at war with them. It's easy to respond by saying, we're going to run away. We're going to retreat into our own little enclave and we won't have anything to do with them. And it's easy to respond by compromising, by saying, let's give up those parts of our beliefs that make the world think that we're crazy. Flight, fight, compromise. The three basic temptations. Those things, by the way, aren't unique to Christianity. Anytime a person's beliefs are opposed by the world around them, the temptation to fight back is real. The temptation to run away is real. The temptation to compromise is real. That's not unique to Christianity. But the church certainly has responded wrongly to opposition in those particular three ways. Flight fight, or compromise. Peter doesn't actually offer any of those three as a legitimate option. And this is what I find so refreshing about this book. He's face to face with a suffering that's beyond that which any American has experienced. Not yet to Nigeria or Somalia, but a very real suffering where the very word that you're a Christian could have you pulled in front of a local magistrate and they demand that you recant. That's a pretty harsh world. And in that harsh world, he doesn't say fight back. He doesn't say run away. And he doesn't say compromise. Grounded in resurrection hope, he simply reminds the church who they are. He reminds them what their calling is supposed to be. And he reminds them where their hope actually lies. I think those three things, identity, calling, and hope, are a message that we need to hear is we face what is likely to be the post-Christianization of America. I'm not a prophet and cannot tell the future, but unless there's a major revival, it seems that there is a particular course going on that involves the post-Christianization of our country. And the temptation to fight back, the temptation to run away, or the temptation to compromise will be very real. And yet Peter offers a different path entirely forward, one that I think that we need to hear. This identity, this calling, this hope, this is all, the identity, calling, and hope, along with the pain of living in a world that dismisses them, 
is all here just in the first couple of verses. The lectionary reading didn't actually include verses 1 to 2. It jumped in with verses 3, and I was like, no, hold up. Peter introduces all of his themes in 1 and 2. We need to start here. Because in the very first verse, he calls the church the elect exiles. And in those two single words, he begins to lay the groundwork for how we respond and how we think about ourselves, our identity, our calling, and our hope. The elect exiles. Elect, in other words, he's reminding them that you've actually been chosen by God. I think this is something that we need to actually grapple with. That the church has been chosen by God. That God's doing something. That he's not hamstrung. That he's not at a loss. He uses in verse 2 the word foreknowledge. That God actually has a purpose and a plan. And that includes even this little body, that includes you and me, that he's actually got something that he's up to. They are the elect ones. They've been chosen and set apart to do something. This election involves an identity, that they've been made into something that they were not before, that this is something that is more than just you and me gathering in a room, that there is something going on in the very heart of God that overflows into creation and that it includes this. He's trying to wake them up to the realization that this isn't just me all by myself, that God is at work. He's doing something. And yet he calls them exiles. Exiles are people that don't fit in the world. Exiles are people who are lonely. Exiles are people who feel like their culture is not their own. Who feel like they're a long way from home. And feel like they're overlooked and disregarded. It's this exile status that we feel when the world dismisses a Christian belief is irrelevant or intolerant. And it's this exile status that we feel when we're tempted to fight back. When we're tempted to compromise when we're tempted to run away. Just in those two little words, Peter's laying the groundwork for all that he's going to do. Verse 2 is like this as well, far more important than we would think, not just an introduction. He's hinting at something that will become increasingly clear in chapters 2 and 3. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This hints at the fact that we aren't called into existence. We aren't the elect to be superior. We aren't the elect to fight back. We aren't the elect to run away. We aren't the elect to compromise. This little verse hints at something that he's going to flesh out in all of chapter 2 and 3. But the church is called into existence for a reason. And the hint that's laid there, the seeds that he plants in verse 2, is that the church is called into existence to be the very tabernacle of God in a foreign world. Let me repeat that. The church is called into existence to be the very tabernacle of God in a foreign world. In other words, the church is called into existence to be the place where people can meet God. That's our purpose He's going to flesh this out in chapter 2 
in terms of what we are, our identity, and in chapter 3, our calling, how we should act. But the seeds are all here. When he speaks of the sanctification of the Spirit, sanctification, being made holy, the word used in the Old Testament for those things that are set apart for a purpose, those things that are set apart, and it's particularly a word that's used of the whole nation, it's called a kingdom of priests, and Peter will pick this up, but it's used particularly of the Levites and of the temple itself, something consecrated. And it's not consecrated to be at war with the world. It's not consecrated to run away from the world. And it's not consecrated to become like the world. It's consecrated to be something utterly unique in the midst of a strange land, a place where people might see the presence of God. It's consecrated to be the tabernacle, the temple, the place where God meets with man. All that is hinted at in that little word, sanctification. And he's going to flesh it out for us fully at the beginning of chapter 2. The word sprinkling with his blood that he uses in chapter 2, this hints at the same thing. Because if you read Old Testament, what you discover is, you know the things that were sprinkled with blood? Those things that were consecrated. The temple, the tabernacle, the priests, the elements used in those systems. Do you know why they were sprinkled with the blood? To consecrate them and to set them apart so that they would be used for a purpose. All of the seeds planted in this verse point to something. The church isn't elected so that it can just be content that it's better than the rest. The church isn't elected so that it can have a superiority complex. In fact, if we're honest, we know ourselves and we know that we are absolutely no more deserving than anybody around us. The church is not elected to fight the world. And it's not elected to run away from the world or to retreat from the world. The church isn't elected just so that we get to be saved and escape. Election is about calling. The church is elected so that it can be consecrated and set apart for something that God in his foreknowledge has chosen to do. Peter's reminding them of something in the midst of a suffering world, and the thing that he's reminding them is the fact that your lives are bigger than what you think. They are part of something that God is doing, and he has a very clear and explicit plan for this. This brief introduction hints it so much. The image that's kept coming to my mind as I've wrestled with what he's hinting at is that of an embassy on foreign soil. Think about it. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's decent. Because an embassy on foreign soil has its own laws internal to itself, does it not? It's expected to be loyal to that country that planted it there. It's expected to obey the rules and the laws of the country that planted it there. And that embassy necessarily will feel weird, the odd one out, in the culture that it's planted in. This sort of place that doesn't fit. But nobody ever says that because it doesn't fit, that means there's something problematic. It needs to compromise with the world that it's in. And nobody ever says because it doesn't fit, it needs to fight with the world that it's in. And this is where the analogy breaks down because it is a little bit of a retreat from the world that it breaks in. The analogy is not perfect. But I think it should help us because the hint of these verses is that the church is God's embassy here. In other words, when we try to take away the distinctions and become just like everything else, we've lost the calling. When we start fighting with the world because we're different, we've lost the calling. 
And if we run away, we'll forget the very reason that we were sent. The church called, formed the identity of God's tabernacle, sprinkled with blood, called into obedience of Jesus. And that phrase in verse 2 is so important. Because if the calling and identity of the church is to be the tabernacle, the place where God meets man, distinct from the world and yet in it for the sake of salvation, if that's the calling, then it must be in obedience to Jesus. Because he alone is the perfect place where man meets God. The church is just following him in this trajectory. There's so much embedded in just the first two verses. I told Courtney that I was tempted to start preaching the 45 or the 50-minute sermons because we haven't even gotten to verse 3. But I won't do that to you. I value too much the moment of silence and the prayers of people where we begin to work out this in our hearts as we think about our neighbors. I value too much being able to sing many times throughout the service. The rest of the book will begin to flesh this reality out. When you look at the second half of chapter 1, it's all about holiness and love. And you say, why are holiness and love so important? Why does it matter that I abstain from sin? Why does that matter that I love my neighbor? And the answer is because you were called to be the tabernacle of God in a foreign world. The tabernacle is a place of holiness. To taint it with sin is to disregard and blaspheme what God is doing with it. Why do I have to love my neighbor? Because the whole point of the tabernacle is that it might be planted in a foreign soil so that those people would see the character of God. And how will they see the character of God if we are not loving them? At the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, the first few verses at the end of 1 and the first 3 at the beginning of 2, he talks about abiding in the Word of God. Why is this important? Because it's in the Word of God that we see how God redeems man and we see what he is doing. If we were to understand our identity and calling, we must be abiding in the Word of God. He moves from there in chapter 2 into the full-flown description of the church as God's temple in this world. He fleshes that one out entirely. He carves it in stone, quite literally. He moves from there in the latter half of chapter 2 to begin to address how do we deal with the people around us. If this is true, that we are literally called into existence to be different, to be planted in foreign soil so that people might come to see God, how do you treat your government? How do you treat your neighbors? How do you treat your employers? And he works through all of these things in chapters 2 and 3. Like I said, it's a really important book for us to face. Dealing with the question of who we are, what we're called to do, and where our hope is. The brief introduction in, chapter, in verses 1 and 2 hints it's so much. It's worth acknowledging as we close, and really today my goal is just to introduce the book, so don't fear if I didn't touch every phrase. In fact, my encouragement to you all is take this little book home and wrestle with it. Read it over the next five weeks. Think about it. Let it seep deep inside of you. But it's worth acknowledging as we sort of talk about the beginning of this book that it's actually uncomfortable to be exiles in the world. No one really wants to be the odd one out. No one really wants to be the kid on the playground that doesn't fit in. Nobody actually wants to be in the place where they feel like they cannot be honest about who they truly are at their work 
for fear of what people will think of them. It's uncomfortable to be the odd one out. We want to fit in. But exiles, by definition, are people who actually just very simply don't fit. By the way, that may be enough for you because you may go, oh, then I'm not doing something wrong if I feel like I don't fit. It's uncomfortable to be in that position. It's uncomfortable to feel like you don't have a home, that everybody in your neighborhood is on the same wavelength, and I can't be on their wavelength. It can be uncomfortable to be in that position. And that's why most of us will likely face one of those three temptations, to fight back and try to claim some ground so at least I have a place that's mine, to run away, not deal with them so that I don't have to feel that feeling, to compromise so that I'm a part of them and I don't look like the crazy one because I believe in something that they think is crazy. It's uncomfortable to be in that position. And the temptations that we face are real. But Peter's clear. We've been called to be exiles for a reason. God has a purpose for this thing that he is doing with the church. When you think of yourself as the embassy, you go, yes, I can imagine that not everybody would want to be on that embassy. But you can understand that it has a reason for existing. And that may make some of us go, wait a minute, I didn't know that I was signing up to be on this boat. I thought I was signing up to be on a boat that would just make my life easy. And what you're telling me is that I'm signing up on a boat that actually has a purpose, but it's a purpose that involves feeling like a foreigner in your own land at times. And therefore, we look at things and our beliefs are questioned and we say it's just easier to let that one go. But Peter makes it clear in verses 3 to 9 that what we've been given is absolutely worth holding on to. And so it's actually with the glory of verses 3 through 9 that I want to close. Because he makes it clear that even though we face this discomfort and even though we face this temptation, what we have been given is too valuable to lightly let go of or to lightly compromise. It can be wearisome to feel like you don't fit. But it's a good reminder to know that the glory that we've been given surpasses all of the discomfort that we might feel. In verses 3 through 5, he talks about the fact that we have been born again. And I know that's Christianese. But I actually delight in this passage because he uses it in a way that feels different than the way John uses it. He says we've been born again into a living hope. He says we've been born again to an inheritance that's imperishable, unfadable, incorruptible. He says that we've been born again for salvation that's ready to be revealed. His point as a reminder to the church is that you've been born into something that's waiting for you out there. A living hope, an inheritance to come, a salvation that's going to be revealed. Reminding them that there is something in front of you. I think that reminder is necessary for us because the day that we live each day occupies so much of our thoughts and our hearts, and we can forget that there is something that is waiting for us that is greater than anything you have ever experienced. This is not the end, in other words. 
The thing that lies in front of you is greater than anything you have experienced as of yet. This living hope, this inheritance, the salvation ready to be revealed. In that, he acknowledges, and this is verse 6 and 7, that we experience suffering and grief. But what he says in those verses is that even though God does not cause those things, and even those things caused weeping and grieving, that God's not powerless in the face of it. Even the sufferings and grief can be turned into refinings for us so that the faith that comes through on the other side is beautiful and pure, full of glory, so that when Jesus is revealed, all this explosion of praise and glory and honor will occur. He's reminding them that even though you face things that are difficult, God would use those things, not cause them, but use them for the refining of your faith. And then he closes this verses with the very simple declaration that even though we haven't seen Jesus, we rejoice in him and love him. Some of you may say, I don't feel very much love for Jesus every day. And I think Peter would say, you missed my point. You keep showing up. You keep saying your prayers. You keep seeking him. That is love for him. Don't get dissuaded because you don't feel everything right now. Rejoice in him. And the thing that lies behind that, even though you have not yet seen him, is one day you will. One day you will. That's the thing I want to close with. The thing that's appropriate for resurrection season. Is it, you say, why should I continue on this ship that is a foreigner in a strange place? And he says, because one day you will see Jesus. Let the desire to see the Lord grow in your heart and let it encourage and strengthen you to heed his calling, to listen to his description of your identity and long for the day when he will be revealed. Amen.